The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode of Chatter for August 21st, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast hosted by David Priest and Shane Harris that features in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's Chatter episode is entitled Gone with the Wind, Hitler, and America First with Sarah Churchwell. In the episode, Priest sat down with Churchwell to discuss Gone with the Wind, how it reflects a mythologized lost cause version of the Old South, and its connection with today's increasing political violence. This is Chatter. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, cultural and literary historian Sarah Churchwell on Gone with the Wind, Hitler, and America First. You know, if we say that Gone with the Wind is a moral horror show, well, so is American history. And a lot of what I tell here is horrifying. I didn't write this book to be like, oh, white Southerners, they're the ones to blame here. It's that white Americans liked this story that the South had to tell in which we were all innocent and we fixed it all and we can move on. The film's attitudes to black people in particular is really, really hard to watch. There's actually a black character who says both in the novel and in the film that he liked it when when Mr. and Mrs. O'Hara told him what to do and he found it too difficult to think for himself. So they're highly infantilized, right? And, and of course, all of that is a deep embedded justification of slavery. Sarah Churchwell, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. This is strange for me because there is a famous book in American history, perhaps one of the most famous books in American history, on which you are a true expert. And I'm not going to even mention the title of said book in this conversation, which is completely unnatural, probably unhealthy, but I want to reserve that conversation for another time. So can we pretend that a a certain novel isn't even there for the purposes of this talk? I'll do my best. I have a, I have a bad, it actually it'll be, it'll be character building for me because I have a bad habit of importing <laughs> that book into literally every conversation that I have. So I will do my utmost. You sound like someone who has just finished their dissertation, gotten their PhD. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the conversation is at the cocktail party within about two <laughs> sentences. There's a way to weave back to the theme of the dissertation. It's so always. <laughs> I want to talk about something else. And, and yes, please, let's uh, make a date to talk about that uh, on another occasion. But 
you have a new book out, which I found absolutely fascinating. I know it was much longer than you in, intended it to be, but I'm grateful for it because there's there's so much good material in it. And it is about really two things that intersect heavily. One is the top grossing movie of all time, Gone with the Wind, but also about the mythology, the American experience, the the cultural history of everything from the Civil War, Reconstruction, the movie, the Klan, up to and including America First and the Make America Great consciousness of the past several years. There's a lot to deal with there, but I really want to start with your initial plan for this. You had initially planned, if I recall, a short book or even maybe long articles simply building on some of the stories about Confederate monuments and building in the Gone with the Wind ideas. Tell me what that conceit was and then how it is you discovered there was way too much to break down to limit it to that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. And um, and and thanks for um, having me here. It's really a pleasure to talk about this with you. Um, and also, you're only the second American interviewer that I've talked to about this. And it's such an American topic that what? it really is. Yeah, so far. That's I mean, the book shock. just come out. So but um, hopefully there will be more. But um, but but it is it's it's I've tried to write it in a way that will interest people all over the world. But it's a deeply American story and it's a deeply American experience that we're engaging with here because it's really a book about cultural memory. And that's kind of what it expanded into being about. And so it is it is special. There's a different level of conversation that you can have with other Americans about it. But so, yeah, as you say, I, I originally conceived of this as a short book. I've learned I don't really write short books. I should stop pretending that I will ever write a short book. It's, I don't think it's in me. Your editors must love you. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, God, there she goes again. Um, but the it, because I first started thinking about it in 2017, um, back uh, almost exactly five years ago, in fact, um, as we speak this week, people have been um, honoring the five year anniversary of the events in Charlottesville, um, the terrible uh, uh, protests. And then, you know, I won't call it a riot exactly, but um, but that led to the death of Heather Heyer. Um, right. And the, that was, you know, for so many of us, uh, um, uh, so many people around the world, um, a wake up call when, of course, Trump famously refused to condemn the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists and said that there were very fine people on both sides. And I think for a lot of observers, again, you know, nationally and internationally, there was a sense that Trump had shown his true colors for the first time at that point where he had, as we now say, you know, said the quiet part out loud, for, you know, and up until then it had been encoded. Anyway, so it was a real kind of landmark for a lot of people. And as it happens, I live in London. And um, at the same time, there were conversations there uh, and still are uh, similar, very, very analogous ongoing conversations about the end of empire and about bringing down statues in the United Kingdom to people who either were direct enslavers themselves or who profiteered off of enslavement, you know, through the triangle trade. Right. So it's very Absolutely. much an ongoing conversation in, in, in post-imperial um, cultures. And so I started thinking about it in, in, you know, how I would do a little explainer, maybe for British audience, not even necessarily thinking about it as a, as a book that would, you know, and maybe that Americans would be interested in, but that would just kind of explain how Confederate statues were analogous. And one of the key things was the way in which, um, people then, even now, I think are much more, we're all much more up to speed on this history because people have been writing and talking about it for the last five years to a great extent, but that those statues didn't go up in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, that they went up in the beginning of the 20th century as part of a project of cultural commemoration. And the reason why I thought Gone with the Wind would be a, um, 
an interesting way of approaching that story was that, um, first of all, Margaret Mitchell, who of course wrote Gone with the Wind, was born in 1900 and died in 1949. So her life basically uh, uh, coexisted with that Confederate project. She was part of that movement. She grew up as the statues were going up. And um, and then, um, you know, died after the war at the beginning of the Cold War. So so I thought that her life kind of, you know, gave us bookends of, of that story in a way that was um, that helped make a complicated story manageable. But also just for people to see that Gone with the Wind um, was a was a, was a, a recognizable or familiar um, version of the story, even if you lived um, abroad. So that was kind of the, the starting point. And then quickly, as I began working through it, I realized that that I was once again, as I always do with my work, coming at big questions of American myths and myth making and the mythological impulse in the American imagination. And that what Gone with the Wind brings to that, I think, is um, if, if we add all of what Gone with the Wind captures to the facts of the history, which we already don't know, right? So first of all, we've suppressed and lied about our own history to an extraordinary degree. We can tell the truth about that, but then what Gone with the Wind captures is a whole host of emotions and psychology and wish fulfillment and fantasies and desire around that history. And that's what I think that that telling the story through Gone with the Wind brings to it. Once I realized that, there was no way I was going to do that in a short book. That became a big and, and really complex can't. project. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly realized that I was telling a, 160 years of American history and thought, how did I get myself into this? Right. <laughs> right. So Gone with the Wind has cultural resonance I, I would argue for almost every American, even those who have not read the book or seen the movie or or both. And I'll put myself in that category. I, until recently, had not seen the movie. I had seen clips of it, of course. There are a couple of scenes that it's very hard not to see growing up in America. And then probably flipping by some classic movies channel or something, I, I remember seeing a few things that stuck in my memory but I had not seen from from start to finish the entire film until recently. And I still have never read the book. Somehow in all of my classes, that was not a book that that came up. But it's good to reset everybody to what the book meant when it was published and how it got translated into film. So talk us through that. It's what, June 1936 when, when the book is published and how does it do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well remembered. Very specific. June 30th, 1936. And so, yeah, we're in the middle of the Great Depression. And um, and the book, you know, Margaret Mitchell was a first time author. She was not famous when it came out. And it was an it was an honest to God word of mouth smash hit phenomenon. Like it just was one of those natural hits. Everybody wanted to read it. It was a it was a sensation. It won the Pulitzer Prize, so it was taken seriously, um, and that's important to understand. It wasn't just seen as a kind of trashy phenomenon. Um, it was immensely popular, but people also saw it as having a refreshing realism. Um, we now think of it as an incredibly sentimental, romantic, uh, um, mythical take on the um, the Civil War period, um, the, the end of the antebellum period, the war itself, and then Reconstruction, which is the, the time span of the novel. Um, but because the 
two main characters who, as you say, even if people haven't read uh, or, or seen it, people have heard of Scarlett O'Hara. They've heard of Rhett Butler. Um, they know Rhett Butler says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn as he walks out the door. There are things that you just, you know, absorb regardless of, of whether you you know the story well. And the reason why it was taken as being comparatively realistic was because Scarlett and Rhett are both antiheroes in certain kinds of ways. They're not sentimental Victorian mm-hmm. figures of melodrama. She's not a saintly heroine by any stretch of the imagination. They're both scoundrels. And that in of in and of itself was seen as a fairly realistic take to put realistic people into this antebellum backdrop. But of course, what white audiences at the time were completely blind to was how totally unrealistic its depiction of slavery as such and mm-hmm. all of the um, structures around um, chattel slavery and, and all of the effects of it. So which is a lot of what my book is about. But so it was a, it was a huge, uh, phenomenal bestseller. It has since been understood, I think, rightly as a story that hit its moment because it is a story. It was a popular novel in the middle of the Great Depression, as I've said, that's about survival. It's about resilience. It's about defiance. It's about not being defeated by uh, circumstances beyond your control. It's about particularly it's about not starving to death. It's about, you know, your farm going to waste and your determination to cling on to your home no matter what. So it's a story that had real purchase in the depths of the Great depression in the middle of the dust bowl um and and i think that you know that was really why it resonated with american audiences at the time and then of course it's it was at the same time um during the rise of european fascism and so as this um, novel instantly started to go around the world it was you know exported very very quickly people loved it everywhere because because scarlet is somebody that is easy to identify with as a survivor um and the at the same time David Selznick had instantly purchased the legendary producer. David Selznick had instantly purchased the rights to the film and spent three years making the film, working on it. And he had a real knack for publicity um, in a way that we would recognize now. So he had this whole publicity campaign around the search for Scarlett, that he was going to find the perfect actress to play Scarlett O'Hara. And um, and that helped build all of this publicity and hoopla and interest in the film. And leading actresses which- wanted the role. Right. Every this single one the, of them. This was the get. It was the part. Yeah. Betty Davis was desperate for it. Catherine Hepburn wanted it. Joan Crawford wanted it. That everybody wanted it. Every redhead in town and lots who weren't redheads wanted it. Um, <laughs> and the and Scarlet hair has dark hair anyway. But um, and the. Um, yeah, everybody, right? Everybody wanted it. Betty Davis was given a part that she did win an Oscar for in Jezebel um, as a trade-off because she didn't get it. So, um, yeah, so they were all trying for it. And, um, and of course, it eventually went to Vivian Lee, who was an unknown at the time, and this was her star-making role. Yeah. But so when the film came out, the film came out three years later, and, and I think sometimes people don't realize how close they were, that the um, the book was 36, the film was 39, um, it came out at the very end of 39 and went across the country at the beginning of 1940. Of course, by that point, the war had started. So the Second World War had begun, America hadn't yet entered it, but um, but Britain had, and um, in fact, Leslie Howard, the um, the actor who plays Ashley Wilkes, mm-hmm. who was British, um, he was British Jewish from North London, and he instantly returned to join the Royal Air Force. And he was actually killed um, flying over Germany a few years later. So it was a very so the the war was was happening, and at that point the novel internationally became this story about survival of war and of occupying forces, and a story about resistance 
and defiance. And so it continued to find audiences from the Depression through the Second World War because of the ways that its themes resonated. And then by that point, it was kind of this instant classic. And then, you know, it, its future sure. was secured. But it has continued um, to, to remain that popular, which is worth noting. It still shifts around 300,000 copies a year, which is a number that Amazing. any author today would, you know, give their career for. No kidding. And you're right. I mean, it, it hit the the theme, the the perseverance, right? The the struggle, the overcoming adversity. Yes, the the novel, presumably, which I've not read, but the film definitely that's there. Um, and then there's a whole lot of other stuff that's there that audiences at the time either didn't care as much about, or they were they were willing to accept because they didn't know better. Which is not an insult. It's just the matter of the way history was being written at the time about the the, the time period. Um, also, in film, you had not seen something quite this epic before. Yes, you had other other things that had done amazing scenes, but even a modern audience watching Gone with the Wind now can look at some of the cinematography in the mansions and certainly some of the scenes of Atlanta on fire, and it's recognizable. And you have to go back and realize this was the 1930s. They didn't do things like that. You can see why film critics say that it's an important movie. Where I have trouble is critics saying it's a great movie because I got to be honest, Sarah, I was cringing. Uh, through most of the movie, I found it both um, personally distasteful in terms of the character of Scarlett O'Hara and yeah, she's persevering, but you can persevere for a lot of the wrong reasons. Um, and also just the way that it portrayed the interactions between the enslavers and the enslaved. So let's jump right into that. It's, as you write, a globally influential tale about the American Civil War that manages to miss the entire point of that war. A thousand page novel and then movie about enslavers busily pretending that slavery doesn't matter. That's a harsh indictment for something that many film critics consider one of the greatest movies of all time. Help unpack that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I really like the distinction you made there between important and great, and I and I would agree with it. I mean, I grew up with the film of Gone with the Wind, so I um, I'm more influenced by it, and it's harder for me to get distance from it because as a kid, I loved it so much. Um, so I still think that uh, that the relationship and the performances between um, Scarlett and Rhett, between Vivian Lee and Clark Gable, I think that really holds up. And I think there's a lot of um, the, the battle of the sexes aspect of that relationship. I still I think hasn't dated as much as the rest of the movie has. But I agree with you. A lot of it is very cringy, and and also technically, as you say, it was technically very accomplished. It's worth remembering 1939 is the great year of classic Hollywood cinema. It's the year of The Wizard of Oz. It's the year of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, another very topical film um, yeah. about corruption in Washington, D.C. Um, and, um, and and many other, Stagecoach, many classic movies made in 1939. But it was also only 10 years into sound, right? So we mm. think of, those of us who love old movies, think of it as being, oh, by 1939, everything was, you know, kind of settled. Well, it wasn't. As you say, it was still a very, very young form, and they were still figuring things out. And, and The Burning of Atlanta holds up partly because they didn't do it on um, a, a, a 
back projection back screen, mm-hmm. they they actually burned a lot. So they were going through fire and, and Selznick set a back lot on fire so that he could do it for real. So um, so it's it's not, you know, um, it's not kind of dated special effects or anything. Um, a lot of it really works. But yes, as you say, the, the, pro- the problem with it and why it has dated very rapidly, I think it held up basically through the 80s and 90s and people still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I, when I say people, I mean, not only white people, to be clear, I've spoken to a lot of African-Americans who've talked yeah. about their own conflicted relationship with it and that they found it enjoyable, even though they also found it cringy and racist. Mm-hmm. And, and they found themselves saying, I know it's racist, but um, so it's a it's a complicated viewing experience for Americans from many different backgrounds. And mm-hmm. um, and so I'm not making sweeping statements about, um, you know, universalizing a white American perspective when I say that Americans broadly seemed to keep enjoying it, although in complicated ways through the 80s and 90s. But now with the the kind of wholesale reframing of our own history and the the very overdue recognition of the ways in which we have uh, ins- continued to insist that you know that that slavery wasn't that bad, and at the same time that it's over, and at the same time that you shouldn't right. really talk about it because it's kind of like why are you still dwelling on this thing from the past? And to actually this painful recognition that the that the legacies of slavery are still very much with us. And so then, yeah, then you watch a story about the about you know died in the wool white supremacists, mm-hmm. uh, you know, romanticizing them, and and who as and you know as we both said, you know, the film's attitudes to to black people. In in particular is really really hard to watch so it basically it's it's the the myth of the loyal slave the idea that enslaved people preferred enslavement and that right. they would go running back to the o'haras after they were emancipated because they, there's actually a black character who says both in the novel and in the film that he liked it when when mr and mrs o'hara told him what to do and he found it too difficult to think for himself so they're highly infantilized right and and of course all of that is a deep embedded justification of slavery to say that black people deserve slavery either because they're savages or because they're childlike and that they prefer slavery. And that worldview is deeply embedded in the novel. Mm -hmm. What happens with the film is that Selznick, who of course was Jewish and was himself the son of immigrants from what is now Lithuania, um, was rather more sensitive to some of these issues than a white Southerner from Atlanta like Margaret Mitchell, whose grandmother was an enslaver. Um, And so Mitchell grew up with this apology for um, for chattel slavery that that David Selznick certainly didn't grow up with. And as I recall, Sarah, wasn't I, I have this memory that David O. Selznick was so committed to getting that famous line in, uh, for, you know, I don't give a damn, a word that was not used in in cinema. He was so willing to go to bat for that that he actually, you know, cut back on a lot of the racism from the novel. Well, it was a trade-off. It was an actual exchange that he had to yeah. make with Hollywood's censorship office, which yeah. was called the Hayes, the Hayes Code, right? And that was exactly what it said that you couldn't swear on film until the 60s. It was when you couldn't show sex and all of it was the censorship code. And swearing was one of, you couldn't blaspheme and that included damn. And they, as you say, they really wanted Rhett Butler's valedictory line, which is frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And But at the same time, the black cast and black critics um, across the country, black writers and journalists and activists were lobbying for the film not to use the N-word, which the novel uses, I was going to say liberally, but there's nothing liberal about that word. Um, the, the novel uses it encyclopedically or something, frequently, yeah. Um, yeah. constantly. And... Um, 
and the but so African Americans around the country were saying, if you have to make this film, do not use the N word because they understood that that's an incitement to violence, and they understood that it is itself a word that unleashes violence. Even and, in 1937, 1938, 39, because it's a reflection of the time in which it's made, not our modern sensibilities. But even then, there was awareness that, okay, th this this highly celebrated novel really is offensive beyond what we can put on film. They said they thought it, black people said it was dangerous, rightly so. They said it would be dangerous to black people. They said it would incite a lynching holiday. Remember that in the 1930s, Black people were still getting lynched in 1936. There were terrible, uh, um, brutal yeah. stories of, uh, uh, of what was called spectacle lynching, right? Claude Neal was lynched in Florida in 1936 or 37. Anyway, in there, in that period. And so it was an ongoing, uh, you know, violent trauma for black Americans. And they said this film is an apology for this and it is going to incite lynching there was also called lynching orgies. They said it was going to incite a lynching orgy across the United States. And in particular, they were focused on the N-word, which they described as the N-word. They were already euphemizing it and they described as a hate word. So absolutely, this is not our, as you say, not our importing our modern sensibilities onto this. This is black activists at the time recognizing the danger and fighting it and the black cast. So Hattie McDaniel, who plays Mammy, um, Scarlett's nurse, who would, of course, become the first African-American actor to win an Academy Award for her performance of Mammy. She actually, behind the scenes, led the, um, the fight to Selznick to keep the N-word out of the film. She and um, Butterfly McQueen, who played Prissy, one of the other enslaved women. And they said that basically they would, they would play the parts as written, and they are minstrel caricatures, but that they would play the stereotypical parts as written, but they wouldn't use the N-word, and they didn't want it in the script. And so Selznick eventually, he did a straight exchange with the censorship office because the N-word was also censored. So they, the black cast was pointing out that the N-word was not frequently used in film even at the time. And so the Hayes Code said, let's, and they thought it was going to lead to boycotts. So from a commercial point of view, they didn't want to use it. Right. So they said, we'll keep it out. And then Selznick said, okay, but then I get my damn. And so basically he decided what, what a white man said was more important than what was said about or um, you know, describing black people, right? You mentioned the minstrel caricatures of... Um of so many characters here, the ones that get any screen time at all, which is a, perhaps a related issue we can discuss. Um, but what I found in watching the novel is after the initial shock of that, that there actually was some depth to the character. Um, and I can see why she won an Academy Award for it, because even with that, it was almost like breaking the wall with the audience because she, she did everything but wink at the audience later in the film when she becomes the moral conscience of the film in some ways. And it wasn't really in the words she was saying. It was in the way she was holding herself um, during times when all this was swirling around her and Scarlett's, you know, so worried about these things that are completely selfish and narcissistic. And then suddenly you have her character who, who's basically shaking the audience just by a gesture, just by uh, physical acting. And I found that remarkable. I, I was not expecting to see that when I watched the film. I absolutely agree. And I think that Hattie McDaniel's performance is one of the things that keeps the film from dating, ironically enough. Um, and it is, as you say, because she brings that sense of irony to the part. Um, and uh, and all, as you say, almost winking to the audience about it. 
part of that trade-off that Selznick made with the black cast was to expand the part of Mammy. Um, but it's, as you say, that was just to give her more screen time. As you say, it's not really in the words that she says. So she has more screen time than that she might have been expected given the, the way that other secondary characters were drastically cut from the novel. The novel is a huge cast of secondary characters, hundreds of them. And most of them were axed entirely. Um, but in Mammy, they expanded. And But it's really, as you say, it's Hattie McDaniel's performance. So what she did there was humanize a stereotype. She was given this caricature, this cartoon character that had this whole vaudeville tradition. And she understood the vaudeville tradition and she brought this woman to life and gave her, gave her the impression of a backstory without ever telling a word about her. You understand that Mammy is a person who has her own rich interior life, who makes her own judgments, mm-hmm. who has her own view on what's happening here. And, and very much, um, as you say, and as they say in the book, she becomes the moral conscience of the film. It's one of the reasons why, for me, the film has dated better than the book. So if you found the film cringy, you're going to find the book pretty unreadable I'm afraid I'm sure sure. you know the the book I'm assuming now but the the film I know is horribly inaccurate for the way that it portrays the civil war and a, a lot of things around it and yet I was surprised to learn from you that Margaret Mitchell herself believed that she was giving an accurate portrayal. She thought, she said famously, she did her research, which is a phrase we have to be careful of in many contexts, but she <laughs> but spent not inaccurate. years researching <laughs> the, the right novel, analogy. talking to yeah. people, primarily, of course, white Southerners, but she she wanted to portray it as accurately as she could within the context of the story, and yet it's so laughably bad at it. And I'm hoping... You, you can shed some light on that contrast, that she wasn't trying to do the thing that perhaps in modern times the film is is best known for, which is its horrific spotlight on exactly the wrong parts of the historical lessons from the Civil War. Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth saying that there are certain aspects of the Civil War that she does actually get right, um, primarily military history. So she's okay on that, right? She's, she's <laughs> yes. okay on, you know, she's okay on the stuff that is... Um, that is, is more empirical, right? That's less interpretive and less about society and culture and politics. That is faint praise though, as I mean, as a cultural yeah, historian <laughs> that you are, saying that she got the facts of the rough timing of the Battle of Gettysburg yeah, and much. the fact that many Confederate soldiers were injured and laying on the street in a famous scene, that yeah. that is faint praise. Absolutely. It's a low threshold and that's all she gets over. So, um, but, but you put your finger on it um, at the beginning of, the, of that question in, in saying, in actually drawing the analogy to that, that phrase today that we have on social media, where people say that they've done their own research, right? And, and what, that, what that implies is the question is, what's the source of your research? Where are you going for your information? Because if you're going to biased sources, if you're going to sources of disinformation and misinformation, then doing your own research is part of the problem. And that's exactly what she did. So as you say, she went entirely to white Southerners. She went to a history that had been formed by white apologists for slavery, but also very, very importantly for the aftermath 
of the war, for reconstruction, for the idea that Black people participating in American democracy had been a disaster for the American political system, and that it was the the, the catastrophe that they called, quote unquote, Negro rule, which is multiracial democracy, which just meant any Black participation in democracy. They described as Negro rule and said it was a disaster for America because Black people can't be trusted to be part of the political process. And so she grew up with that bigotry and absolutely believing that and then simply refused. It didn't occur to her um, to uh, to ask any questions beyond that. So she was you know, this is a book about the Ku Klux Klan, where she says that she didn't bother researching the Klan because everybody knew the truth about the Klan. But of course, what she knew was myths about the Klan. She did not know the truth about the Klan. So there's a real lack of intellectual engagement there um, and, and a real complacency where she just assumed that she could just talk to the people around her and they would all just, it was a pure confirmation bias, that they would just sit around confirming each other's biases and that this is the way it was. And then she could tell a story that very comfortably reinforced her point of view and not challenge anybody's perspective at any point. And of course, it wasn't just about the South. It didn't challenge white Northerners' perspective on America either. And it's important for us to understand this. It's something I, I try very hard to do in the book as somebody from Chicago. This is not a, for me, I didn't write this book to be like, oh, white Southerners, they're, they're the, the ones to blame here. It's that white Americans liked this story that the South had to tell. And we liked telling a story in which we were all innocent, in which nothing really very bad happened. And even our version of slavery was really innocent when you look back at it. And really, there's nothing for us to worry about. And we fixed it all and we can move on. And that was an easier, far easier story for all white Americans to tell than to do the hard work of admitting black people into our democracy and really reunifying after the Civil War. We simply, as I say, in the book, right? We just, we basically pasted, we had a divorce and then pretended we didn't have a divorce. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't worked. <laughs> it's just 160 years later, it demonstrably hasn't worked because we didn't address the root cause of the division. And one of the things that that surprised me about this was that at the time that critics basically n- not only accepted this uh, by and large, and obviously there were some who did not, especially in the African-American press, but many prominent critics not only accepted this, but but praised it. There was one review that that you write in your book, and I I found myself just jaw dropping at the time and wrote wow in the margins because the the critic wrote that Gone with the Wind is better than objective history for it has a reality that history can never achieve. Wow, I mean that 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 to me says so much about not about Margaret Mitchell necessarily, but about the times in which the film was made and released and its intersection with a lot of themes about what was going on in America, including what you just mentioned, this mythologizing of the Civil War from the perspective of the enslavers themselves, that somehow Scarlett O'Hara is the real victim in all of this, that the critics didn't see through that really surprises me because you have to think that there were some critical thinkers at the time. And instead of thinking about this critically, they were solely focused on other issues and allowing that backstory and that history to just sweep over the country. Yeah. So I'd say, I mean, a couple of things about that. One is that um, it's a deeply gratifying story for white people, right? So it, as I said, you know, it, it makes life easier. Um, 
this story about white victimhood is really kind of central to what I'm trying to do in the book. And one of the things I'm arguing is that I think that Gone with the Wind captures the genesis of that myth of white victimhood. Um, which I think did begin after the Civil War. And this idea, as you say, that Scarlet is the real victim, that white people were the real victims here. And that's certainly a story that we still see. That's certainly, um, you know, an attitude and uh, a motivation, a motivating force behind a lot of our politics right now is white people saying that they're the real victim of racial, of movements to racial equality um, and and to economic equality or social justice. And I I found that really exemplified in the scene where Scarlet O'Hara is back at Terra and she's actually out in the field under the sun and their hands are are actually dirty and hurting and i think the scene was meant to convey this feeling of oh no poor scarlet and and these women out there working in the fields and instead you're just shaking your head at the absolute blindness of what the overall point actually is and i don't get the sense that critics even understood that bigger picture I don't think they often did. And I, as you say, some African-American critics kept trying to point it out. <laughs> they were like, hello. Um, but white people were absolutely not listening by and large with a few important exceptions. And I, I try to mention some of the exceptions in the book. So writer, white writers like Lillian Smith, who had no time for Margaret Mitchell, um, who wrote the book Strange Fruit, um, you know, was, a, was herself a racial justice campaigner, but also William Faulkner. Right now, Faulkner is a much more complicated figure. We could do a whole different conversation about Faulkner, but he's worth bringing in here because his great book about the Civil War, Absalom, Absalom, was also published in 1936. It was published at exactly the same time. And he has a much more complex relationship to uh, to race and racial history and racial memory, still right. deeply problematic. I'm not saying that yeah. he gets it right by any stretch of the imagination. But in a very different way. But in yeah. a very different way. But he would be much more capable of making the leap that you're talking about, of realizing that actually that that the idea that that it's it's hard for white people to be out working the earth because that are toiling in the fields because that's what black people are supposed to do. Hmm. Faulkner would would be able to make that leap and to be like, well, wait a minute, why are we assuming that black people should be doing that either? M- Mitchell is absolutely incapable of making that next step. So she assumes that black people belong tilling the fields, and that that is, and certainly Scarlett assumes that, and Scarlett belief system is not just that she wants to get her house back and her wealth back and her status back. She, her fantasies after the war are consistently that she won't feel like she's got her life back until she thinks black hands and not white are working the fields at Terra. Exactly. It is underpinned specifically by black labor. And that's central to her whole idea of power and the white system that she thinks that she's supposed to inhabit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. 
it was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I'm going to say a sentence that I don't think I've ever uttered before in English or any other language. I want to talk about Hitler. 
because <laughs> one thing one thing you do is you tie together not just the themes of you know the origins of the lost cause and the the clan and its second rise um you know talking about the 20s and the 30s and the context for Margaret Mitchell's novel itself but you you talk about gone with the wind and its intersection with the rise of fascism and perhaps i was unfair to all critics when i'm saying that so many critics simply missed the point of the movie but on this point you highlight that some critics actually were seeing it before the movie was released some six weeks into the movie's production there was a columnist who wrote in the spring of 1939 the fascist implications of gone with the wind and its nostalgia for the old old south are fairly palpable um this was not lost on some people uh talk about that talk about the rise of fascism talk about how it intersected with reinforced reified some of these themes of the old south and how that gets us to Hitler's apparent love of this movie. Mm. I'm so glad you brought this up because to me, it's such an important part of the history that I'm um, telling here and trying to excavate. But uh, because it's about Gone with the Wind, a lot of people have just wanted to focus on the Civil War and its aftermath. But Gone with the Wind came out in the 30s, as we've said. And the context into which it emerged was not just the American context of the Great Depression, but the European context of uh, interwar fascism. And the subtitle of my book is Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. And that is broadened out for a reason, because one of the big set of lies that I that I try to examine in this book is our lies about our own fascist past. We do not talk about American fascism as a thing. We just don't admit it. We pretend that it didn't happen. There wasn't an American fascist movement, you will be told. Um, it just skipped America by somehow. Right. And it just didn't. It's not true. We had interwar fascism. We had people who self-identified as fascists, stood up and said, well, you know, this is the American fascist party. So, I mean, they were fascist. Um, they followed Hitler. They followed Mussolini. They wanted to, to bring Nazism here. They wanted to bring Italian fascism here. They never gained power. There were lots of them. They, they weren't good at working together. Um, that was part of their problem. But they, but they were fascist by any reasonable definition. And the and part of what I want to get at here is what an American fascism would look like because and the problems with defining fascism and thinking about fascism, because, of course, that's very much a part of our ongoing political debate where people now say, well, it's it's a historical to talk about what's happening now in terms of fascism because that because America didn't have a fascist movement. Well, it's just, again, it's just not true. So what we're seeing in my view, and I will say that what we are seeing today in my view as an American and as a cultural historian is a resurgence and reinvention of the American fascism of the interwar period and what that looked like and what it looked like intersected with Gone with the Wind. And people recognized at that time that the, the kinds of mythical narratives that Southerners and white Americans in the North to a lesser degree, but that Americans liked to tell about American democracy had very, very striking parallels with the kinds of stories that Hitler was telling about Germany and indeed that Mussolini was telling about Italy, that they were about regenerating the land. They were about, mm -hmm. when we talk about Hitler, you know, we talk about a Herrenvoke democracy, right? That the yeah. pure folk, that the real people are the, the Aryans in Germany, um, are, or in, you know, in Nazi Germany, um, 
are the are the real Germans and that they are the ones who can run the country. And it's a democracy, but only for them. And um, and that everybody else is not a real citizen, not a real German, doesn't deserve to be their uh, second class citizen. And then that's a slippery slope eventually to the final solution and to genocide to saying not only are you not citizens, you're not human, you don't deserve to exist, you're vermin. Um, and the same analogy, the same structures of thought and mm -hmm. politics and value systems were operating in the American South, which was absolutely a hair-invoked democracy. By any rational description, the Jim Crow South was a hair-invoked democracy in which only white people were allowed to vote. Black people were suppressed. Their, their vote was suppressed. They were not able to vote in any functional way or in any um, collective way that would move the needle politically. Um, and so what you had was a system in which only white people were permitting themselves to vote. And, and people recognized Jim Crow for its uh, um, parallels and connections to Nazi Germany. Now, it's important to say that this wasn't just a parallel, and they also recognized this at the time. They recognized that Hitler seemed to be learning from the Klan and that he seemed to be learning from American eugenicist racism. And indeed, he was, as historians have later demonstrated. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they drew up the Nuremberg race laws based on the American laws of hypodescent, which we know as the one-drop rule, right? And in fact, the Nazis said that the one-drop rule, which of course said that one known African ancestor made you legally black, mm -hmm. the Nazis thought that was going too far. And so they said, you have to have one grandparent. You have to be a quarter Jewish to be legally Jewish and subject to um, to those right. uh, um, anti-Semitic laws. But in America, so, you know, we, as far Hitler thought that we went too far with our racism, right? And that's not an exaggeration, right? This is yeah. all very, very well documented historically. So I wanted to, um, to, to recover and remind ourselves of those intersections. We like to tell the story about America happening over here as democracy and fascism ha happening over there in Europe. Um, and it just, that simply is just, it's not the case. It's absolute historical right. nonsense. But there's a real tension there, Sarah, because the the fascism, as you described it, evolving in Europe and the, the which gets to the final solution is based on the idea that you cannot have this supposed superior race living in harmony with with lesser humans or subhumans. Um, there's there's a contradiction there because a lot of the mythologizing about the old South was it was not that the races can't live together. It was that we had the perfect way that races did live together. And guess what? The African-Americans liked it because we were in a socially harmonious relationship where we were the owners and the African-Americans were taken care of by us. And they were happy to be in that condition of enslavement. And in fact, it was the Northern aggression that disrupted this, and we are victims. And in fact, we ourselves will say that the African-Americans are the victims of disrupting this harmonious relationship. That's not the way I understand a, a Hitler interpretation of fascism. So isn't there a tension there with the the link in some aspects of fascism very clearly between this resuscitated South, the lost cause argument? But the fact that their treatments of people that were not part of the superior race were, in fact, quite different. So I think it's a really important question. I'm really glad you asked it. But I would say two things to bear in mind in, in trying to answer it. And it's a really complicated question, um, which is probably what makes it such a good one. But first of all, 
white Southerners, by and large, did not support Hitler. They supported American intervention uh, um, when the war came. Mm. They fought hard against Hitler because they didn't see themselves as fascists. Now, I say there were American fascist groups across the United States, and there were. But this white Southern harem book democracy didn't think they were like that. They thought that their system was a benign system. So, they, so exactly the description that you that you just offered is what they would have said. But they would have said, "But ours is preferable. Look how look how well we've done it. We we're not fascist because look at our happy system where everybody coexists." And so and that's it's a good all point fine. because they would make the case that the lynchings, which were of course still going on as you've noted, were not instruments of state policy, right? Which that's, that's in, exactly in, what they said. in in Hitler's Germany, uh, it, that was a state state directed Mandated. violence. Yeah, yeah. and it, that was exactly their defense. They Southern newspapers editorials literally said that. So that was that was part of their defense against seeing the parallels here, right? But the other important thing to to remember, the bigger answer to your question is that fascism is ultranationalist by its. By definition, that's what it is. So right. every nation's fascism is different. They do not have these strong ideological parallels. What they have is what historians sometimes call family resemblance, right? But Mussolini's fascism was different from Hitler's fascism, mm-hmm. right? Mussolini's mm-hmm. fascism wasn't predicated on anti-Semitic genocide, but he was sure willing to go to uh, genocide in Ethiopia, right? So there are different versions of it. It iterates itself differently, but it has these core uh, um, belief systems, which are about us and them, and is and are um, are about anti-democratic. Uh, they're 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 opposed to a plural democracy. They are opposed to the idea that all of these citizens could coexist on not just coexist, but on an equal political platform on a on a platform of equality. And that the White South was certainly not saying right. And so it's that it's that presumption of inequality. And that of, of an anti-democratic system that is that is at the root of the similarities between them. But absolutely, they play out right. differently. And it's not a simple comparison that we're making here. But it is to note that it is it is equally too simplistic to say that fascism just passed America by. Something mm-hmm. much more complicated is happening. I do want to get back to to that in particular to the evolution of. America first ideas, um, as you've written about separately, but I can't let Hitler go yet yeah. because okay, yeah, sorry, we got to get to Hitler. You're very, you're very careful with Hitler as a historian. You're very careful with your source. One has to be talk. careful with Hitler. Don't you think? <laughs> good point. I think that's we a good general be, rule. Be, be careful. Yeah, exactly. When in doubt, be careful with Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Being careless with Hitler analogies <laughs> is, is perhaps the, uh, one of the original sins of the internet, but in terms of your history, in terms of how you characterize Hitler and his relationship with Gone with the Wind, you were exceptionally careful uh, with sourcing and things like that. So let's talk about what is known and, and what is unknown or unclear. It seems known that Gone with the Wind as a film was very popular in Germany. We, we know that it actually did very well and received a lot of positive reviews, in part because of its p- depiction of this you know, relationship between black and white Americans in a very well-defined patriarchal system. Um, what else do we actually know for sure about Hitler and Nazi leadership and their relationship with the film itself? So we don't know anything for sure uh, in a sense that, that it's not been disputed or questioned in some way. But what we have are multiple sources who, uh, uh, you know, more or less validity, who are all saying in different ways that um, 
that the Nazi leadership watched the film. And there are different reports that Hitler enjoyed it very much. Those reports came out at the time. Um, they were they were sent back to Margaret Mitchell via her publisher. So she was told that that Hitler enjoyed the film. Um, right. And so the first publisher the, himself was, yeah. was said to have was said to have reported that Hitler wanted to see the film, saw the film, I, I think, to see Paris film. originally, right? Exactly. And so there are different, the, again, there are different versions of where uh, supposedly Hitler screened it multiple times, but none of these are absolutely rock solid sources where we can, where we can put hand on a heart and say, we are confident. We know that Hitler screened this film. But the point is, is that is that Nazi leadership was talking about it in such a way that it made clear that everybody thought that Hitler would be sympathetic to it. And that's really the only kind of claim that I feel I need to make in this account is not to prove or disprove whether Hitler watched the film or didn't watch the film, but that Nazi leadership all were like, yeah, this is the kind of thing we like, isn't it? This is right. great. Right. And the point is, is that, so they were eating it up at the same time that you know the French resistance was watching it. So eventually what and the reason why we aren't sure whether Nazi leadership liked it is because as it became a an underground novel for the French resistance, the Nazis worked out that actually it was becoming um, a story that the resistance liked and so they officially outlawed it. So they so they were watching you know kind of black market copies of it and they couldn't admit that they liked it because it was illicit, right? So you mm-hmm. get into that um, uh, complexity of it as well. So basically it became this resistance text, right? And, and what I'm saying is that if we, if we get out of the question of, um, did Hitler like it or did the French resistance like it? Everybody liked it, right? Everybody could find something that they were connecting to in it. Um, they found this story about survival and, and resilience. But it's also the point that we were talking about earlier. Everybody saw themselves as the victim. So if you see yourself as the victim, it's a story that you're going to connect to. And if you see yourself as the victim of, um, you know, if, if you're an anti-Semite who sees yourself as the victim of the Jewish conspiracy that's trying to bring down Germany, then you're going to like that movie too, right? If you see it as a story about the reassertion of the um, the proper sphere of things in a Heronvoke white supremacist way. But what I'm saying about Gone with the Wind is that whatever else your politics may be, there's only one way to look at it, which is that as they start watching the movie, um, uh, or, sorry, as, yeah, as the movie's popularity um, increased during the, the opening years of the Second World War, even the critic for the New York Times watched it again and said, this movie is like, it's, it's, it's absolutely a parallel with what's happening in Europe right now. And this is like the Londoners in the Blitz, right? Well, if Scarlett O'Hara is like the Londoners in the Blitz, then that means that the, the North is the Germans. That means that you're saying that the that Lincoln is a fascist, <laughs> that Lincoln is the bad guy. You're saying that Lincoln is a fascist if you're the one drawing that analogy. And they did draw that analogy. If you're prepared for the South to be on the side of the people resisting Hitler, then you're saying that the North abolition and Lincoln are the fascists in this scenario, right? Wow. And that's the math that nobody ever did. Nobody stopped and said, wait a minute, somebody has to be the anti-fascist here and somebody has to be the fascist. So who is it? So in the story of the Civil War, if you're making an analogy to fascism, Lincoln is not the fascist. That again, the, the same principle as being careful when we talk about Hitler, I'm going to go with Lincoln, not a fascist. Right? When in doubt, 
Lincoln wasn't the fascist in the scenario. Yes, we we may um, have a bias here. You know, both of us growing up in Illinois, the land of Lincoln, and you're looking now at my Lincoln bobblehead that I have here. Um, we we have a bit of a bias when it comes to Lincoln. It's kind of in our I don't blood. Think he's because a fascist. Of schools, but even in schools outside of Illinois, I don't think there is the point taught in school books that Lincoln might have been a fascist. It just doesn't exactly. come up that way. Right. So yeah, exactly. there's this real tension because you can see that. And I think the evidence that's really so fascinating is that even when the movie was banned in Germany because uh, leaders of the Nazi party realized, holy crap, you know, this is basically a resistance story and it's about the courage and the faith of these resistors. Even when that happened, they continued to hold private screenings. That Gone with the Wind was still popular among the Nazi elite. That to me is a fascinating point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, it, again, it speaks to this point that the the story, what it's connecting to are um, these deep emotional fantasies that transcend these specific political contexts that we're talking about, which is why the book has remained as popular as it has for you know, right. almost a century now. Right. And this really does fit into the, the much larger theme of American cultural history that you've looked at from several angles, that America really is a story. Uh, we are not a territorial based, uh, 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 you know, the, the blood and soil based. Um, we, we, we fetishize our founding documents. We're really based around an idea, but that idea has to be told and retold. And as that's done, how do concepts emerge? How do they change? How do they, they take on meaning of their own outside of their original construction? And I think all of this we've talked about really fits into the, the subject of your earlier work, which includes, in addition to many articles, the book Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream. Talk a little bit about the America First intersection with some of these themes of American storytelling as it comes to fascism, as it comes to the Old South, because it seems to me most Americans listening to this are sick of hearing America First from the last few years. But if they reflect on their history they might take it back to Charles Lindbergh in the period before the Second World War, but they won't take it back to where America first really emerged in some of the national debates that were around it uh, in, in headlines at the time, just around 100 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I've been, um, you know, one keeps researching and when one is um, looking into this and, and American history is a big subject. I, as I said, I live in London and people there like to joke that American history is a nice short subject on like European history, um, but it's still a big topic and there's still always more to be found. And in fact, it turns out that America first is even older than I thought it was in the book. And I do say in Behold America that it, that it might be even older um, and that that just remains to be seen. Um, And in fact, I was right. It is older. And I've now taken it back to the 1850s, established that it was used in the 1850s. And it seems now, and this would actually make sense. It seems that it has emerged, that it did emerge rather in the context of the original nativist movement. And this does bring us right to the civil war, of course, because the 1850s being the run up to the civil war. So the original America, uh, uh, the America, what was the the nativist movement was also called the American party. Um, And they referred to themselves as native Americans, but they meant native born Americans, of course, not indigenous Mm -hmm, people. mm -hmm. Um, And it was the original anti-immigrant, uh, movement. So they were a political party that formed around um, a rejection of the first big waves of European immigration in the 19th century, of course, yep. were at that time in the 1840s, primarily Irish and German. Um, 
And the nativist party was, an, as I say, an anti-immigration restrictionist party. Mm-hmm. And they started talking about being America first and defined themselves as America first and saying, I put America first. And that's when it started to become a political slogan. And of course, the, the, um, for, for his, um, students of uh, American political history and the history of our political parties, we'll know without our getting into the weeds here, but we'll know that the, the way that the, um, the nativist party, uh, its evolution was actually fundamental to the way the Republican Party emerged with Lincoln at its uh, head um, right. eventually. So, so this is a movement that, that really kind of leads almost directly to Lincoln's Republican Party. And the the original nativist movement was an America first movement. It was I just also love high- this. I just love this, by the way, Sarah. I love this as a case study in history because you researched the hell out of America first. You had newspaper columns and quotes from uh, from writers and radio broadcasts from decade after decade, and yet you dig back and you find it's it's still there. More. And in my mind, and maybe it's because I read a whole lot about. Um, Henry Clay and and others in an even earlier period, um, it wouldn't surprise me if in some of the discussions about internal improvements, which was a big debate in the 1820s and 30s, you know, should the federal government be investing in the states to develop infrastructure and all that? Somewhere in my mind from the research I was doing for my second book where Henry Clay has has a role is it wouldn't surprise me if the phrase America first was actually used in some of those debates as well in a yet different context that then had others build upon it in ways we just haven't dug into yet. Yeah, it's certainly possible, right? I mean, what I find interesting is that when you start with this part in the 1850s, if that is the emergence of it, there's a, there's a very consistent through line about nativism and anti-immigration that carries all the way through. So it doesn't evolve in the ways that you might expect it to, but The other thing that's consistent with it is um, conspiratorial thinking. It's always Mm -hmm. attached to a conspiracy against America that it's defending against by putting America first. Mm -hmm. And so originally it's the Mm anti-Catholic, the um, uh, anti-papist conspiracy theories of the um, 19th century, which sound a lot like the anti-Semitic theories of Mm -hmm. um, the turn of the 20th century. So they had an equivalent of the blood libel. They said that the, you know, that Catholics were eating babies or I can't remember what it was, but so basically it's, you know, it's, it's pizza gate and QAnon. It's always about your conspiratorial enemies killing children. They're always killing children and we have to put America first. Right. And so that, that story is, um, is actually, as I say, is, is, is kind of remarkably consistent as America first is used as a political slogan. Now it's also worth saying that when I say it emerged in the 1850s, it certainly didn't take the country by storm. Right. So it didn't really become a thing until, until about a hundred years ago, the beginning of the 20th century. And that certainly remains the case. It's just finding earlier traces of it and realizing that it that you know yeah. here is this kind of prehistory of how it emerges into the conversation. Right. It's fascinating that by I think it was 1916, the presidential election had both candidates using America First slogans and using it primarily for kind of building into this 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 theme, this 100% American that, and and it's. Basically, it's not even a dog whistle at that point. You're 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 one step closer to just putting it right out there. That, yeah, you know, we're talking about the fact that you you may think we 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 fought that war about um, equality under the law, but we didn't. Maybe we ended slavery, but we certainly don't think that all Americans are equal. And America First came to really symbolize that for people of very different political persuasions, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it came to say that there were it, it was what really started to um, 
to imply that there were real Americans and unreal Americans, that there were that there were second class Americans and that immigrants were somehow lesser Americans or that they they were accused of the canard of dual loyalty that also Jews and Catholics have often been accused of, that they're not really loyal to America. They don't put America first. Um, and as you say, both presidential candidates, Wilson and um, his opponent, um, uh, Charles Evans Hughes, in 1916, both ran on America first platform. So you were voting for America first in 1916, whether you liked it or not. And they were um, both in different ways um, uh, running on an isolationist platform about keeping America out of the war in 1916. So it's already becoming associated with these ideas of isolationism and protectionism. And then by um, by the early 1920s, I mean, Harding ran on an America first platform. He became president on that basis. And by the early 1920s, it was absolutely ubiquitous. You could not get away from the phrase America first. But I'm, I'm glad you brought in this idea of 100% American because I think mm-hmm. it's really important too. Of course, it ties in intuitively with the one drop rule, the idea that, yep. that there are percentages here about how American are you and that it can be measured and that it can be measured biologically or racially um, or ethnically. Um, but also that, yeah, that it's the standard test of a, of a loyalty test, right? And actually yesterday, as it happens, I was researching the author that you've said I can't mention in the book that I that we're going to mention in another conversation, but it really, all roads really Don't do make me there. bleep this but out. I won't make you bleep it out, but I was, uh, I was reading a, 19, a popular 1919 magazine called The Smart Set, um, which some of your listeners will know, which was basically the New Yorker of its day. And it had a quiz that was so, it just, I couldn't believe it. It was so a quiz that you could read today. It was a satirical, are you 100% American? And it was a quiz and it was give yourself a point for, and then it was all of these kinds of, um, you know, it was like, if, if you, if you tear up when you, you know, when you see the flag, but also if you, if you hate immigrants, give yourself five points. And so it was very much a kind of, it was a liberal, it was H.L. Lincoln having a go at um, people who thought that they were hundred percent American. So now I want to share that. I'm going to email you that test afterwards. You can take it. Yeah. See we'll, if you're we'll 100% link to it in the American. show note too, as important yeah. as it is, it probably, well, I mean, it's a joke. No, even at the time it was a satire, right? So it's making fun oh, it of it was that. a satire. It was a satire of it. Yeah, yeah. Because I can imagine that in some internet forums today, exactly the same way, not as satire. Exactly. Well, this was this was satirizing the fact that it existed in an unsatirical form, right? Right on. So trace trace for me the evolution of America first, because yes, people tend. I think uh, many of our listeners are aware of the America first isolationism, World War to the the fascist friendly Charles Lindbergh things of this sort. Um, but then during the Cold War, it I think there was this great cultural feeling like, oh, we're done with that. We are engaged in the world. Everybody's on board. And then it wasn't that long ago that suddenly we have the what often is called the alt-right starting to bring back America first and many of the same phrases with similar, if not identical meanings to some of its darkest points in American history. But what is that through line from 1916 in the 20s? to to the early 1940s and then suddenly resuscitated in and around 2015, 2016, 2017? Well, one of the important through lines, unfortunately, is the Ku Klux Klan, and they became a real caretaker of the phrase. 
Um, so they uh, appropriated it in the 20s. They actually tried to copyright it at one point. They claimed or claimed that they had copyrighted it. That's how much they wanted to identify themselves with it. They carried, you know, marched with banners saying America first. People will have seen photos that are circulating around the Internet. Of There's a famous one of a women's march in Binghamton, New York, in upstate New York, of women holding an America first, uh, women in the in clan costume, I should say, um, parading and holding an America first sign. And there are other images around that you can find. And then, as you say, the war really brought America first into disrepute because it had been so closely associated with Limburg, with isolationism, with arguably Nazi sympathizing, certainly with appeasement, that once America was all into the war effort, then America first became, in fact, a byword for sedition. And the people who had uh, led the America first um, uh, cause to a certain extent, um, several of them were, in fact, prosecuted by the um, Roosevelt administration during the war for seditious conspiracy, another thing that has come back um, to our political conversation. Um, so America first was sedition then too. Um, and um, But that was a, the, the case was no good. It collapsed. It was a weak legal case and the whole thing collapsed and it, and it mm. was deeply problematic in all kinds of ways, not least because it infringed on free speech. But um, the fact remains that it then culturally, in terms of the cultural imagination, it became associated with uh, it became discredited and associated with sedition. But there were people who still kept flying the banner for it. Um, there was a, a, a very famous man who was a deputy of, um, of uh, Huey Long's who was called uh, um, Gerald L. K. Smith, who um, when he died was called the most famous anti-Semite in America, which is the kind of epitaph he presumably wouldn't want, but he was probably proud of it. Um, and um, he tried to reform an America First Party, a political party that was officially the America First Party immediately after the war, um, in the in the mid forties. So it so it did keep it kind of kept um, chugging along, but the Klan kept hold of it. Now the Klan also kept kind of collapsing and then reforming. The Klan yeah. has had a long yeah. problem with corruption. Um, they they have a, a long problem with sex scandals. They keep somehow finding themselves with these financial corruption and sex scandals. I don't really know why that is, but we, who, who can say why? <laughs> Something why about that the people. Be? you attract to that. I, I, I feel know. like maybe that might be the reason. I don't know. Um, so there, speaking of through lines, the, the clan keeps collapsing into financial and sexual scandals um, while they police the morality of everybody else. Um, and um, and then they and then they reform. Right. And and they kept America first alive. So in the 60s, there there are traces of America first rallies um, with the Klan. Um, and then George Wallace uh, was called an America first um, politician. Barry Goldwater, when he emerged, was described as an America first politician, taking us back to where we need to be, said his supporters. He's a real America first politician. And those were people who would have remembered the language of the 40s, of course, you know, if they were just slightly older. So it never really died. But it, it wasn't um, a major part of the political conversation. It just sort of would keep kind of creeping back in. David Duke, of course, now, um, you know, probably still America's, again, these these um, uh, dubious distinctions, um, America's most famous Klansman, even though he doesn't lead it currently. But um, he has been associated with America first since the 70s. When he emerged on the scene, he described himself as an America first politician. When he endorsed Trump in 2016, he said, I'm glad to see Trump standing for what, I, what I've always stood for. He stands for America first. That was part of Duke's endorsement of Trump was around the phrase America first. Right. But the right. person who really brought it back into the political conversation in the 90s was Pat Buchanan, which many of your listeners will remember. So but at that time, Buchanan was out of step with uh, America's politics more broadly, electorally. And so he was just seen as this kind of paleoconservative throwback. Um, and, and his isolationism was seen as very out of step. But now 
a lot of uh, people on the right are saying that he was ahead of his time and that he just did that a little bit too soon. Trump flirted with Buchanan's party. Um, he joined it at one point. And then he repudiated Buchanan's party in the 90s, saying that it included people like David Duke um, and a neo-Nazi and, an, and that he thought that Buchanan himself was an anti-Semite and that those weren't the people that you wanted to associate with. So Trump knew perfectly well what the dog whistle meant in the 90s and, and, dif- and distanced himself from it. And then um, 20 years later, apparently uh, changed his mind um, about whether he was willing to associate himself with the meanings of that phrase. But from my point of view, the meanings of the phrase have not uh, shifted very considerably um, in the hundred and, well, now, as I say, it's 170 years that, that I've been able to trace its existence. I am struck by the fact, Sarah, that you you are a cultural historian uh, as a profession. And yet, even in this limited conversation, um, we've talked as if you're a literature professor, as if you are a political scientist in in this sense. Um, we've talked about economics. We've talked about actual film studies. Is being a cultural historian really just an excuse to just be intellectually curious about everything and have an excuse to research and write about what you want? Absolutely. I'm, you're on to me. I mean, oh my God, I've been outed. Um, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, and well, look, you can't... You can't talk about a culture. I mean, it's like a huge thing, right? American culture. How do you even get your arms around that? Mm-hmm. I mean, I trained as a, as, a, as a literature professor. That's kind of my bread and butter. Um, but I've always written books that were around cultural history and particularly around myth-making because for me, myth-making is where all of this stuff that you're talking about comes together. So yes, I have to be conversant with those things. I certainly would describe myself as a political scientist, but I try to, you know, under, I have to understand what's happening in the political discourse um, in order to do cultural history. But, but for me, it's about understanding how those stories are told and having a sensitivity to those stories and then seeing how history shapes those stories, how politics shapes those stories, how religion shapes those stories. You, you know, you potentially yeah, have to have your finger in a lot of pies in order to, to try to um, I'm going to mix my metaphors wildly now, but um, as I said, to kind of get your arms around it, I'm getting my arms around something with my fingers and lots of pies, which sounds very, very messy. <laughs> right. It gets to an area that I think we used to culturally, societally, generally call, and in some places like the University of London, uh, we still call the humanities, that it's not so super segmented and specialized that you can only talk to other people who talk about you know, 19th century theories of economics, and you can't have conversations with others, but but you have a broader understanding such that you're talking about the intersection of society, literature, culture, film, politics. All of that informs the rest of that to get a better understanding of these big themes. Yeah. What I'm always trying to understand is what I would describe in possibly slightly academic terms, but as cultural discourse, right? What is the mm. discourse and, and how, where does it come from? How do we understand it? How can we read it? So yeah. you can't read it until you've put it together and then you have to understand how to analyze it and how to interpret it. I love decoding, right? That's just fun. Sure. And it is, um, you know, it's treasure hunt and it's kind of detectives. And, but so to, to, to trace things like um, a phrase like America First, or I just did an essay about race suicide, the phrase race suicide and how mm. that connects to to the history of anti-abortion debate in America, another topical um, subject, unfortunately. Um, and, and the way I, lo- I, I really like understanding how these codes work, these dog whistles, as we now call them, because I think that they have given cover for a lot of, um, of American myth-making. It, they give plausible deniability. They are fig leaves. And they allow us 
I say this actually, I think, in both Behold America in different ways and in um, The Wrath to Come, that the, those kinds of codes, they aren't just about deceiving other people. They're about deceiving ourselves. They're about giving us our own plausible deniability and not admitting our own baser motives to ourselves often and saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm just for America first. And, and I'm perfectly happy with immigrants coming as long as they know their place and never admitting to yourself that all of the structures that you are supporting there are actually deeply anti-immigrant even though you insist that that's not what motivates you, right? That's right. And it's the way that those codes can give us um, plausible deniability, even to ourselves, um, that I'm always interested in. Kind of want to get at the get at the. I kind of want to keep, you know, nig- niggling away at that. And it also gives you it also gives you the ability to to make these connections that illuminate larger themes. So back to Gone with the Wind. Um, one of the things that's interesting about American history, looking at it over the long view, is you know what are the what are the things we can point to where we have made progress where we have ethically expanded either pushing our moral perimeter outwards to include more people or or getting over an inherent contradiction in order to to leapfrog to something greater and i find it interesting in the early period that american historians of course we focus on the crafting of the declaration of independence and the negotiations over the constitution but when it comes to a theme like americans coming together the seminal story that strikes me is Jefferson and Adams, because you had these people who, for the election of 1800, were doing the kinds of things that we think are only in modern politics. You had partisans of Adams claiming that Jefferson was you know, doing slaughters on altars at Monticello down in Virginia. And you had partisans of Jefferson saying that Adams was a hermaphrodite and claiming that he was trying to you know, reclaim the British throne and have it in America. And yet, after that bitter campaign and they stop talking for so long, there's there's the coming back together later in life and the exchange of letters that actually have some element of forgiveness and, and coming together. And you talk about Gone with the Wind as, as totally whiffing on this, that Gone with the Wind ends, you say, on resistance and delusion, not reunion and forgiveness. So here we are having to admit that Gone with the Wind is one of the most popular stories that an American has produced and Americans have consumed and Americans have internalized. And yet it's profoundly anti-democratic and a moral horror show. Um, that's a hard thing to come to grips with, isn't it? Yeah. But I think for me, that's the that's the fundamental truth that I had to tell. And that's why I call it a moral horror show. It was like the more I looked at it, the more I was like, that's what this is. And, and, and so to me, it matters a great deal that this incredibly important, uh, popular story and important influential story is a story that celebrates divisiveness. It's not just celebrating survival. It's celebrating division. It's, ce- it's, it's nursing grievance. It's a story about nurturing resentment and, 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 and the way that, that festering resentment can, drive, can spur you to succeed, but at great high cost. I mean, the novel does recognize even personal cost. Um, to Scarlet Love, but it doesn't acknowledge the cost to society, that that spite is not the basis for a system of government, as I have said before, and unfortunately appear to have to keep saying, right? Um, that that and and it does think that spite is the basis for a polity, and it just isn't, right? So 
you know, you, you began that question by by saying, you know, there, there's this question about, you know, have we made any progress? Have we have we ethically advanced at all here? You know, is Gone with the Wind just evidence that we're just kind of spinning our wheels? And I think that the conversation that we're having about Gone with the Wind is evidence of the way that we've advanced, because this is a conversation that white Americans would not have naturally had in 1936 in the ways that we said earlier. But we're talking about it now. That is progress. Yeah. That is progress, right? They would not have spontaneously come together to discuss this the way that you and I have just done. So, you know, we can pat ourselves on the back and say that we personally represent progress. But I will also say but much more much more broadly and more importantly, what I see is, you know, people say to me, so does Gone with the Wind show that history really is a circle, right? That we just keep circling back and we just keep circling back to the same issues and America first again and yeah. civil war again and we're back in the 1850s again. And and I really don't believe that that's the case, not least because Steve Bannon uh, uh, subscribes to a um, to a circular view of history. And if Steve Bannon agrees with it, I'm against it. I just mm-hmm. Again, one of these rules of thumb. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I find it a simple way to organize my life. Um, whatever he does, do the opposite. Um, but... The, but in all seriousness, what I see is not a circle, but a spiral. And and I really do believe that that's the shape of history. That is how progress works. It is not that the moral arc of history bends toward justice unless we put a hell of a lot of momentum into that spiral. But if we do, it does bend toward progress. And there is, and I'm not a wig, I'm not, I don't have a wiggish view of history that progress is inevitable. But what I see is that we are it feels like two steps forward, one steps back because it's a spiral. So we're now very much in the retrograde part of the spiral. So we're really feeling that back thrust um, of all of that momentum and the loss of momentum. But I think we're still finding that we're edging forward and that we are moving ever forward to the assumption of a multiracial democracy, to the premise that the nation should be a multiracial democracy. And that is not something that most white Americans even agreed 100 years ago, right? right. So that once we get to a point where the majority of the country says that it, that it is or ought to be, or, and, and that actually it's a problem if it isn't, then we have made progress. We're not there yet. We are certainly not a functioning multiracial democracy, and we never have been. But we are now getting to the point where the majority of Americans believe that it ought to be. And that's actually major progress. I, one of the uh, you, you said earlier before we began our, our proper conversation that um, that I uh, that I demonstrated some talent for making lemonade out of lemons. And um, and, and one of the other um, real upsides that I find in this story is that and, and, and I genuinely like this. Right. Because there's so much horror in the story that I have to tell here. And the, the and, and, you know, if we say that Gone with the Wind is a moral horror show. Well, so is American history. And a lot of what I tell here is horrifying. It was horrifying to me, and I think it will be horrifying to most readers. But one of the things that I find redemptive about American history is that we went from being a race-based slave state to trying to be a multiracial democracy in five years. How audacious is that? I mean, that is just the gall of it. Like, you can't actually believe that anybody would really think they could pull that off. So, of course, we failed. But I love that we tried. I mean, it's just absolutely, it's absurd, right? But it's so gloriously absurd that we even had that kind of idealism and that kind of principle and that there were enough people saying that this is what we ought to do, that, of course, we couldn't get there. But I really, it make, honestly, it's like, you know, in a jokey way, it makes me proud to be American that that's the kind yeah. of thing that we tried. And and so we're not there. I'm not making excuses for the fact that we're not there. And we're I hope trying. that's clear. And I'm not complacent about it. But I think we are driving. It's a, it's a grinding progress. But but we have to see that that's, I, I know that for, 
for me, and I felt that that for a lot of my generation, I definitely was guilty of complacency about our democracy. Um, I definitely thought that we had achieved certain kinds of liberal outcomes that we had simply not achieved. And I didn't understand that democracy is an ongoing process, that it's never done. That's what I think a lesson that a lot of us have learned the hard way. But part of that lesson then is that we keep putting that energy into driving it forward and into into saying we will be a multiracial democracy, um, whether these people like it or not. And they aren't going to like it, but they're going to lose. We're going to outvote them and they have to lose because otherwise we lose the country. And 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 that's not an option. So, And as, and as a source for that energy, you have just made inherently a very compelling case in the last few minutes for why truly disturbing elements of cultural history. And honestly, having watched it again recently, I'll put Gone with the Wind in that category is I I just find it uncomfortable and difficult to watch uh, in large Absolutely. part. Um, but we shouldn't cancel it because guess what? We are having this conversation because of it. And pretending it didn't exist doesn't give us the fodder for that debate. It doesn't have the cultural touchstone um, that we can use in order to try to come to grips with it and then achieve something greater. So let's not get rid of this as uncomfortable as it can be to watch because it can prod this debate. Yeah, that's certainly my view. And I think that, you know, as I was working on this book, I, I was trying to kept trying to kind of put my finger on, you know, various problems and can you can you diagnose the specific problem? And it seems to me that one of the things that I think that 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 the story that I tell in the book shows and it showed to me is that one of the greatest problems in American cultural life and in our cultural history is denialism, that our capacity for denial is doing grave damage to us as a society. And so to me, canceling Gone with the Wind would just be part and parcel of that denialism. It would be just part pretending that bad things didn't happen. And it is a whitewashing of our own history. Mm. That ship has sailed. This book still still sells 300,000 copies a year. So you can't cancel it anyway. But right. even if I could, I wouldn't want to, because as you say, it mm -hmm. it. It is part of the complexity of our own past. And the truth is all of this complex of stuff. And we have to understand the truth if we're going to get anywhere. And we have to understand the ways in which we have denied our own histories and fought against it and lied about it if we're actually going to get to a point where we can all come together about the reality of our society and build something that we can all live in and that we can be proud of. Right. Well, we've reached the time in our conversation where I reach into the vaunted chatterbox and pull out a random question for you. Should I be nervous? Yes, you should. Uh, okay, <laughs> then I am. Most of them aren't awkward. Uh, let's see. Sarah, name one dead political leader from any era that we could really use right now. Oh, Lincoln. <laughs> I mean, boy, do we need a Lincoln right, right now. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I mean, I know we already said that, but it really, he's... I mean, I don't think I think Lincoln would be aghast and flabbergasted and lots of gas words. Um, but uh, and I'm not sure he would. I'm not sure he would be able to get up to speed fast enough to get us right. where we where we need to be. But I think we need his temperament and I think we need his commitment and I think we need his courage. So yeah. uh, we certainly need somebody a lot more like Lincoln than any of the leaders we currently have. Yeah, Sarah Churchwell, thanks for joining me on Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.